Perhaps you would uh, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 24 and 25. What I want to do this morning is to take a walk through Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And therefore, if you can keep the text open in front of you, you'll find it on page 993 of the church editions of the New International Version that are in the pews. Um, And what I want to do is, first of all, to take a kind of walk through it and, and highlight some of the key themes that are here. And then to bring um, it to a close, I want to read the two chapters this morning, so that what we hear is uh, the whole of these two chapters. I have a couple of reasons for doing this. The first is that this is actually, these two chapters, the final of five discourses which Matthew records in his Gospel as given by Jesus. The very first one, you may be aware, is the Sermon on the Mount, but there are in fact five throughout the whole of the Gospel, and this is the last one, and I think it's very good for us to hear it as a whole. And secondly, I think it's very good for us to hear Scripture read, particularly in significant portions, because it's how it would have been heard in the life of the early church. We come here with the great privilege this morning of bringing our own Bibles or lifting one out of the pew and being able to follow in the text together. Well, of course, that's not how it would have been for centuries uh, in the life of the church because people didn't have access to the written materials and many people wouldn't have been in a position to read. And hearing scripture I think is very important because a great deal of it was written in such a way that it could be heard and make sense as it is heard, not simply as it is read and dissected on a piece of paper. So I want us to walk through this passage. It's an interesting and much debated passage of scripture. Um, It has to do with uh, the fall of Jerusalem. It has to do with the coming again of Jesus Christ. It's a passage which leads many people to the conclusion that Jesus got it wrong or Matthew got it wrong or the early church got it wrong or whatever. So it's a much debated passage of scripture. Um, But I want to begin that walk uh, at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 24. You'll notice at the end of chapter 23, Jesus is speaking about the city of Jerusalem. And he says in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. This is a computer graphic, computer generated graphic of what some people think aspects of the temple might have been like. These huge impressive stones that were put together and these huge doors, the whole thing dominating the skyline of the city of Jerusalem. And what we have here at the beginning in verse 1 is a very dramatic picture in a few words, which is very easy to skip over. The very dramatic picture is in verse 1, Jesus walking away. Most of what we have observed so far in these chapters, uh, particularly from chapter 21 of Matthew's Gospel, has been located around the temple for very good reasons. The son of David entering the city of David. The Son of God entering his Father's house, taking on the hypocrisy, challenging the death of the dead religion that was there, establishing a sense of God's righteousness in that place. And now we have this very simple but very dramatic image of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, of saying, You will not see me again, 
until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and turning and now walking away from the temple. Jesus will not set foot in the temple again. He will be back in the city for Passover, for his trial and crucifixion. The son of David is here leaving the great temple, the ordained place of meeting and worship in David's city, never to set foot in it again. Jesus is leaving his father's house. It is spiritually derelict. God is walking away. Is the image, the idea that in a few words Matthew is giving us here. This is something powerful and dramatic. This is something we ought not to miss. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24 make it clear that the disciples aren't fully aware of the significance of Jesus' exit at this point because they're not so much thinking about the fact that Jesus is walking away from the temple as captivated by the building around them. It was incredibly impressive in scale and design and finish with much marble and gold. Some of them might be fishermen, but they certainly seem to be able to appreciate good architecture. And Jesus' response to them further indicates his leaving of a place destined for destruction. Words that will be used against him in the next 48 hours. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And then from verse 3 is the beginning of this fifth discourse as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. And of course it immediately stirs memories of Jesus sitting and teaching the people in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's very interesting the way in which Matthew records the question that the disciples come and ask Jesus in verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, Matthew is slightly different in his wording from Mark and Luke. But the issue here seems to be that as far as the disciples are concerned, if Jesus is right about the destruction of the temple, it is hard to conceive of anything more significant that could possibly herald the end of the world than the destruction of this great temple. And it seems that they conflate, that they bring together all of these questions into one question. When will this happen? When will this temple be thrown down? Tell us a bit more about this. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Because understandably, in their minds, these things would, must all surely belong together. What happens in the passage that follows is that Jesus separates out these issues. And he answers the question in two ways. He answers the question about what will be the signs, or what, or the, the, how they will know uh, when this will happen, the destruction of, of Jerusalem and of the temple, and then what will be the signs of his coming and the end of the age. Now, when you will hear the whole of the passage read, um, there is a tendency to think that this is very confusing, that this is all just quite mixed up, and um, that Jesus obviously, like his disciples, confused the destruction of the temple with his second coming. Well, he didn't, because what happens very clearly in the rest of the text is that Jesus separates out the question that the disciples ask into two parts. It's all one question as far as they're concerned. That's understandable. But the answer comes in two parts. And as we'll work through the text, you'll see the way in which Jesus deals with what will and won't be signs, the way in which he will deal with the issues surrounding the destruction of the temple, and the way he will deal with the, thing, the theme about the end of the age. I think you can break it up as I have it broken up here on the screen. I'm following the work of a man called R.T. France on this, who has written uh, an excellent commentary on Matthew's Gospel. 
And this is the way he would break it up. And I think it's very helpful. So verses 4 to 14, when we read them, we'll be dealing with what won't be signs, what are just going to be commonplace in human experience, and what will be signs. That's very important. Then in verses 15 to 36, Jesus will concentrate on what will be with the destruction of the temple, which he had prophesied. And then verse 37 follow, will deal with the signs to do with the end of the age. It would appear that, as Jesus says in verses 4 to 8, there are some things that won't be particular signs. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So there are many things that are going to happen in life that are unpleasant, but the end is still some time off. And Jesus makes that very clear to his disciples he talks to them in verses 9 to 14 about some things that will be signs in regard to the destruction of the temple in the near future and may have a longer term application as well like persecution people turning away and right through um, the experience of the early church up to AD 70 when Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed many of these things were fulfilled in that generation In verses 15 to 36, Jesus will talk about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple which occurred in AD 70. It was a horrendous situation and a horrendous event in history. And the siege of Jerusalem uh, lasted for about four years. The Romans came because of uprisings that had been taking place in uh, in, uh, the region of Jerusalem. And they were led by Titus, uh, who surrounded the city. And he put pressure on the food and water supplies of the inhabitants by allowing a lot of pilgrims to enter the city to celebrate the Passover and then refusing to let them back out again. So his initial tactic was to flood the city with people, people who were coming and who thought that Titus was probably being generous in letting them celebrate the Passover, that there was going to be some kind of uh, ceasefire or standoff for a while. But in fact, he used it as an opportunity to pack the place with people, seal it off, and therefore run down their water and food supplies very quickly and make the whole situation very, very different, difficult. There were various attempts to storm the city and to take it. Josephus, a former Jewish commander who was now loyal to Rome, was sent to negotiate with the defenders of the city and this field. Eventually, uh, the fortress around the temple region was taken by the Romans after a secret attack when they overwhelmed the guards who were there. And eventually the Temple Mount itself was taken and the temple was destroyed. Uh, It was destroyed by fire. I don't think it was Titus' intention to destroy it, but it was plundered and then it was destroyed. And it became the site of some of the worst excesses of the slaughter of people that took place within the city of Jerusalem. Let me take time just to give you a little flavour of this. This is part of the account that was written by Josephus in uh, his Jewish wars. And it will give you a sense and a flavour of what was happening within this great city of Jerusalem. And what was happening is celebrated um, today. You can go and see it today in Rome, in the Arch of Titus in Rome. Uh, And on the arch you can see the triumphal procession being depicted back into Rome. And you can see in this particular um, scene taken from the arch, these are photographs that Joanne gave me that she has taken of this. You can see them carrying into Rome the trophies of the temple. 
and the destruction was something that was uh, considered to be a, a tremendous success. The taking of Jerusalem, the calming of it, the, the control of it. And this great arch, which you can go and see today in Rome, uh, marks this event. But here's some of the stuff that Josephus has to say about it. When the Roman soldiers went in numbers into the lanes of the city with their swords drawn, they slew those whom they overtook without mercy and set fire to the houses whither the Jews were fled and burnt every soul in them and led waste to a great many of the rest. And when they were come to the houses to plunder them, they found in them entire families of dead men and the upper rooms full of dead corpses. That is of such as died by the famine. Then they stood in a horror at this sight and went out without touching anything. But although they had this commiseration for such as were destroyed in that manner, yet they had not the same for those that were still alive. But they ran every one through whom they met with and obstructed the very lanes with their dead bodies and made the whole city run down with blood, to such a degree indeed that the fire of many of the houses was quenched with these men's blood. And truly so it happened that though the slayers left off at the evening, yet did the fire greatly prevail in the night. And now since the soldiers were already quite tired with killing men, and yet there appeared to be a vast multitude still remaining alive, Caesar gave orders that they should kill none but those that were in arms and opposed them, but should take the rest alive. But together with those whom they had orders to slay, they slew the aged and the infirm. But for those that were in their flourishing age and who might be useful to them, they drove them together into the temple and shut them up within the walls of the court of the women, over which Caesar set one of his freedmen, one of his own friends, which was to determine everyone's fate according to his merits. So he slew all those that had been seditious and robbers, who were impeached by one another. But of the young men he chose out the tallest and most beautiful and reserved them for the triumph, the march that's depicted in the, the Arch of Titus. And as for the rest of the multitude that were above 17 years old, he put them into bonds and sent them to the Egyptian mines. Titus also sent a great number into the provinces as a present to them, that they might be destroyed upon their theatres by the sword and the wild beasts. But those that were under 17 years of age were sold for slaves. Now the number of those that were carried captive during this whole war was collected to be 97,000 as was the number of those that perished during the whole siege, 1,100,000, the greater part of whom were indeed of the same nation, but not belonging to the city itself, for they were come up from all the country to the Feast of Unleavened Bread and were on a sudden shut up by an army, which at the very first occasion so great a tightness, traitness among them that there came a pestilential destruction upon them and soon afterwards such a famine as destroyed them more suddenly. The destruction of Jerusalem goes down in history as one of the low points in human history and experience in terms of the death toll, the merciless slaughter that took place. So when Jesus is speaking in verses 27 to 31, while some people think that what Jesus in those verses must be speaking about is the end of the world, when the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken like some kind of nuclear holocaust that will destroy the rest of the planet. R.T. France would argue, as would many other commentators, that what is happening here is that simply Matthew is using the language of the Old Testament, some of the Old Testament passages which are referred to as being apocalyptic, and using language to describe the horror of what was eventually to happen 
in Jerusalem around AD 70. And it's not that Jesus is chopping and changing between what's going to happen to Jerusalem in the future and the very end of the age, but that the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple was going to be on a scale that only the language of the Old Testament could really do justice to what was going to be seen. So back to our outline. This is how he takes the passage and how I'd like you to think about it as you hear it read a little later. Verses 32 uh, and 34 and what follows um, are interpreted very differently by many people as as they read this passage. The lesson of the fig tree, many people think of that as the establishment of the Jewish state in the 1940s. There's no clear reference to that, but that's the way in which many people take it. I'm aware of that. I'm not sure that I agree with it. Others see other aspects of the prophecy that Jesus makes in the verses that follow uh, as being particular signs that we can read and interpret in our own generation. And I'm aware of how it may be interpreted in that respect, but that's not how I wish to interpret it or encourage you to this morning. Jesus expressly says in the passage that follows from verse 36 that no one will know the day or the hour of his coming again. He doesn't know. But it hasn't stopped people throughout the ages rather ridiculously predicting either specific dates or deadlines by which Jesus must come. Jesus actually says that life will carry on as normal for most people and his coming again will not be predictable. They knew nothing of what would happen in the past in Noah's day and that's how it will be again verses 40 for example two will be in a field two will be grinding with hand mills verse 41 one will be taken the other will remain and as he says and implies in verse 42 keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come and then Jesus will go on to develop a number of main themes two in particular the themes of being ready and being faithful Those are themes he will develop in a number of different ways and you'll hear them developed uh, as we read the rest of the passage. There will be the story, the account of the wise and the foolish virgins. This is a copy of of Blake's representation of that. There will be the account of the servants and their carelessness of, of some who were lazy and not faithful. And then the whole section at the end of 25 will be brought to a close with a very graphic depiction of the judgment for which all his disciples, including us, need to prepare. And the clear drift of the closing section is that right religion is not merely of what you believe in your head, what you say with your lips, but how you live. And in particular, how seriously people take the command of God to love the Lord their God with all their hearts, their minds and strength, and to love their neighbours as themselves. So in chapters 24 and 25, what have we got? We've got the drama of Jesus leaving the temple. A couple of words, but rich in its meaning and symbolism. We have the disciples being captivated by the building itself and sharing in the sense of glory and wonder of their people and their nation. We have Jesus teaching about the time and circumstances of the destruction of the temple and Jesus teaching about the end of the age, the time of his coming again. And the key element of where he goes with all of this, is the need for his disciples to be ready and faithful. Then and now. Before we actually read through it, here are a couple of things I want to leave with you as comments to think about as you hear it read. The first thing is this. 
the remarkable completeness of the text and the wholeness of Jesus' teaching. What strikes me as I have been reading chapter 24 and 25 is that it's really quite different from the way in which I have tended to approach it over the years and it's often approached in preaching. What I mean is that as evangelicals we have the tendency to be selective. We like to think we are or try to be biblical in our approach to theology but we are in fact often selective in emphasis. And as a general rule in my limited experience those who are into prophecy and about the end of the world concentrate on chapter 24. Those who are into social action will major on the last part of chapter 25. Those who are particularly current concerned about evangelism will major on the coming judgment those who are into ethics will major on Jesus' judgment of us in the present as well as in the future but when you read it and hear it as one Matthew presents it as one whole element of Jesus' teaching and it helps you understand that you can't be selective with scripture you could go into these two chapters you could spend weeks going through them there's so much fascinating information in them but you could miss the point there is a wholeness of all of Jesus' teaching. It is of a peace, the coming judgment, the judgment of the present, living in the light of Jesus' return, living ethically and sympathetically. And I find this a real challenge to my own attitude, and I trust it will be to yours. The second thing I want to say is this. It's very interesting to see worked out in this passage where we tend to start as humans and where Jesus wants to take us humans. What I mean is this. The disciples start with an interest and a concern in bricks and mortar. It's not quite fair. It's more than just bricks and mortar. It is a magnificent achievement of the temple that is in Jerusalem. And they are proud of this great achievement built to the glory of God. Obviously there were a lot of political and other reasons why it was built by Herod. But its magnificence was impressive. It was a glorious human endeavor to the glory of God. And as human beings, we're often into that kind of thing. Windsor could hardly be described as a glorious edifice uh, in terms of the praise of God in Belfast. And anything that we ever build in the future to replace this is never going to be on the scale of a crystal cathedral or of a temple in Jerusalem. But that's not the point. And it's not just about bricks and mortar. The point, it seems to me, is that the disciples typify our tendency to stand back and to admire what we do for God which may not be the things that God requires the disciples stand back and admire the temple Jesus is walking away from it never to return the disciples start with the significance of what we have created Jesus takes them to the challenge of how they live and how they treat other people Watch the movement of the teaching as you hear it read, how it begins and how it ends. We all want to belong to something that's significant. Very few of us are interested or happy to belong to an organization or something about which we really couldn't care less. And that's true of churches. But what really matters about belonging to Jesus? What really matters about belonging to the church? Listen carefully and you won't be able to miss what Jesus is at. So it seems to me that what this section of scripture is saying, it's not what we build, it's the building of God's kingdom that matters. It's not what we know about the future, it's how we live for and invest in the future that matters. It's about being ready, it's about being faithful, 
It's about seeing the coming judgment on sin. It's about living justly and righteously in the light of that judgment by the values and standards of the kingdom of heaven. But we could miss it and get sidetracked in the things that interest us. Let's hear God's word. Matthew chapter 24. <coughs> Jesus left the temple and walking away when his disciple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? he asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, do not go out. Or, here he is, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Whenever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. 
No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the day of no, days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch. Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in their jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were, ready, who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Again, it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seed. So I was afraid. 
and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seeds. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For every one who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him, and thrown and thrown through that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people, one from the other, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes, and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So reads the word of God. 